Hey, good evening, everyone, and welcome to today's meeting of the Aristotelian Society. This is the last meeting of this term. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Francesco Berto. Um, Francesco is a senior lecturer at the D Department of Philosophy at the University of Aberdeen and also a research leader at the Northern Institute of Philosophy there. He's also worked at the University of Notre Dame, the Sorbonne École Normale Supérieure of Paris, and the Universities of Padua and Venice. He's published monographs on, on metaphysics and the philosophy of logic, including how to sell a contradiction, on also a number of articles on those topics in a number of um, distinguished journals. The title of Francesco's talk this evening is On Conceiving the Inconsistent. Thanks very much, Francesco. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Um, thanks a lot for having me. Um, so this is going to be a talk on conceivability and possibility, a talk on our conceiving the impossible. And a friend of mine told me, um, to imagine you giving a talk at the Aristotelian Society, that's conceiving an impossibility. I never thought I would have been invited to such a prestigious place. And it's a honor. Um, OK, so uh, the kind of uh, necessity I will talk about is so-called absolute or unrestricted necessity, the kind of necessity we used to talk uh, about qualifying it as metaphysical necessity, especially after Kripke. But I will also allow logical necessities and mathematical necessities to join the club. Okay, so the idea is that we're talking about an unrestricted notion of necessity, what holds in all possible worlds. Okay, and all means really all, not just what holds in some special set of worlds. We're not talking about nomological necessity, relative or restricted necessity. And uh, um, I'm talking about conceivability, and uh, that's a difficult notion, of course. Um, I will take conceiving or representing as generics for a range of intentional activities which involve the depiction of scenarios, situations, or circumstances. Okay, we talk about imagining, mentally visualizing, picturing, and so on. Some philosophers make a lot of the distinction between uh, conceiving and imagining. That was a very important distinction for Descartes, for instance. Some other philosophers like Hume tend to blur uh, the distinction between conceiving and imagining. Um, and I will leave, uh, so the serious investigation of these things, quasi-psychological phenomena to cognitive scientists, uh, phenomenologists. Uh, I'm just following the characterization of conceivability given by some great contemporary philosophers, people like David Chalmers or Yablo. Uh, when they have wondered whether conceivability entails or is at least a warrant for our knowledge of absolute possibility and absolute necessity. Okay. So, Yablo and especially Chalmers have spoken of positive conceivability. So, they say well, that when we positively conceive that A, or A stands for some sentence, we don't just suppose that A 
or assume that A, as when we assume a premise in an argument. Uh, we do something more. We have something like a mental scenario verifying A. We represent it to ourselves a setting, a configuration of objects and properties correctly described by A. Okay, so uh, I will talk about conceiving, in this sense, the inconsistent, or conceiving the impossible, in the sense of absolute impossibility. So that which obtains in no possible world whatsoever. So uh, though I will not defend the claim here, I do not believe that conceivability so understood automatically entails possibility, even though it can be uh, a warrant for possibility. It can provide evidence for the possibility of the conceived situation. Okay. Uh, so my question for today would be, assuming we can conceive the impossible, how are we to understand the model de facto? Um, I reply via model sentential operators understood as restricted quantifiers on worlds. Okay. And there's a tradition stretching back almost 50 years, I'd say, uh, going back to Hintika, for instance, of modeling uh, epistemic states, doxastic states, as restricted quantifiers on possible worlds. Okay. So Intika told us that uh, when we say cognitive agent X knows that P, we should understand this as meaning uh, at all possible worlds, let's say compatible with X's evidence, P is true. Okay. Um, this model analysis has a lot of problems which are very well known. Uh, most of the serious problems go under the level of logical omniscience. I will talk about logical omniscience later. Uh, but I think the approach is good, uh, provided we consider a broader totality than the totality of possible worlds. So the operators which I will propose to model conceivability uh, while avoiding logical omniscience will be hyper-intentional and unsurprisingly so since they model states of the mind. So the set of worlds we will quantify over to give the semantics of these operators will include absolutely impossible worlds. Okay. Uh, what are impossible worlds? Well, people introduce intuitively uh, possible worlds by speaking about ways things might be or might have been. Okay. So impossible worlds are ways things absolutely cannot be. Worlds that represent absolute impossibilities, mathematical, metaphysical, logical impossibilities, uh, as obtaining. I will not take a stance on the metaphysical status of worlds. Okay, so we don't need to take these worlds as Lewisian uh, concrete things. Uh, we can have a deflationary attitude on these worlds, metaphysically speaking. We may be uh, linguistic ersatzers, as Lewis would claim. So we could take worlds just as sets of sentences from a world-making language. Okay. This approach has some problems, which Lewis has highlighted famously, uh, but I think it is a viable approach. Um, okay, so impossible worlds come, can come, I claim, at no great metaphysical cost. Okay, um, 
So now I, I will introduce some simple formal machinery. This will be a, a boring uh, session of the talk, but a uh, section of the talk, but it will not last for long. So uh, consider um, a normal uh, modal propositional or sentential language with sentential variables, the usual connectives, negation, disjunction, and conjunction defined the usual way uh, using negation and disjunction, a conditional, the box of necessity, uh, and possibility defined the usual way using necessity and negation, and a unary operator, this one, this R within a circle. Uh, sentential variables are atomic formulas, and we have the usual, ruled, uh, the usual rules for well-formed formulas. Okay, so everything is like in a standard model uh, sentential language, except for this extra operator, which I will call the naive representation operator. We will see why it is naive uh, later on. Uh, it's just the first approach to my idea of modeling our conceiving uh, the impossible. Um, so we can read intuitively this, uh, Ra, as it is represented that A, or it is conceived that A. As for the semantics, an interpretation for the language is more or less like the usual interpretations for model propositional languages, except that besides having possible worlds, we also have a set of impossible worlds. So P is the set of possible worlds, I is the set of impossible worlds, and the big W, the union of those two disjoint sets, is just the totality of worlds. Um, we have a distinguished actual world, which luckily is possible, and we have a binary uh, accessibility relation between worlds. So uh, it, it works just like the ordinary binary accessibility relation which you find in ordinary model semantics, except that now we can access also these weird guys, these impossible worlds. So uh, world W1 is related by that relation to world W2, just means intuitively uh, world W2 is representationally accessible, are accessible from world W1. Uh, the interpretation relation actually is a pair um, of relations between worlds and formulas. So we read this one with a plus as claiming formula A is true at world W. This one with a minus as formula A is false at world W. Um, okay, next we give the truth conditions for our uh, <coughs> logical operators at possible worlds. And the truth conditions are the same as the ones we find in ordinary propositional model logic, except that truth and falsity conditions here are spelled separately. So we say not A is true at the world if and only if A is false there, not A is false at the world if and only if A is true there, a disjunction is true at the world if one disjunct is true at the other, and it is false if, uh, if and only if both disjuncts are false. As for the model operators, again, we give the truth conditions in this way at possible worlds, box A, this is just the box of absolute necessity, box A is true at the world, if and only if uh, A is true at all possible worlds, and duality for the falsity condition, and we have a strict conditional. So if A then B is, tr is true at world W, if and only if at all possible worlds where A is true, B is also true, and duality for the falsity condition. Okay. Uh, so the reason we give truth and falsity conditions separately 
is that we want to model conceivable inconsistencies. Okay. So we allow formulas to be both true and false, uh, glatty, as people say, and also neither true nor false, gappy, as people say, at some worlds. Okay. We may not want this to happen at possible worlds. We don't want true contradictions to be possible. Okay. So we can impose a classicality condition, which basically says, at a possible world, each sentential variable is going to be either true or false, but not both. So by his induction, the, this generalizes to all formulas. So no glatty sentences and no gappy sentences at any possible world. Um, okay, but at impossible worlds, things go differently. So the simplest way to represent these worlds as worlds that violate logic uh, is to treat complex formulas as atomic at them. That's a standard trick. So at these worlds, we assign truth values to formulas non-recursively in an arbitrary way. So these are weird worlds where a disjunction may be true, even though both disjuncts are false. Okay. Strange, illogical things can happen there. Uh, in general, in this framework, we take impossible words as not being closed under any non-trivial consequence relation. So if you are an ersatzer on worlds, you can just take them as arbitrary sets of sentences from our world-making language. Uh, Okay, so these worlds are going to be accessible via our uh, representational accessibility relation. And these are the truth conditions for that naive representation operator. Uh, it is represented that A, that's true at the world, if and only if, at all the representationally accessible worlds, <coughs> A is true. It is false at the world, if and only if there is some representationally accessible world where A is false. Uh, we need to rephrase the falsity condition to rule out gluts and also to rule out gaps, but that's not very important. What's important is the intuitive meaning of this. So what we mean is that it is conceived or represented that A at a certain world, if and only if A is true at all the worlds that comply with the representation. For instance, let our A be, it is represented that A be my dreaming that I win the lottery, then uh, a representationally accessible world is a fine world at which my dream comes true. Okay, logical consequence is straightforward. Uh, it is just truth preservation at the base world in all interpretations. So uh, a set of formulas sigma entails alpha, a entails a, if and only if in all interpretations, if all the formulas in sigma are true at the actual world, also a is true at the actual world. And logical validity is just truth at the actual world in all interpretations. That's just the standard definition of logical consequence, logical validity you have in model semantics with a designated base world. Okay. End of the technical stuff. Um, okay, so I told you about uh, the phenomena uh, that go under the level of logical omniscience. Okay, so people have spotted for a long time that if we model knowledge or believe similar uh, intentional states as restricted quantifiers on possible worlds, then we get all of these counterintuitive uh, phenomena. They're counterintuitive in the sense that the picture they give us is 
an idealized picture, a picture that doesn't mirror the epistemic and doxastic situation of finite and fallible cognitive agents like us. So if this is knowledge or belief, we have in the standard uh, Hintikian approach that uh, knowledge or belief is closed under logical consequence. Okay, so if I know or believe that A and A entails B, then I also know that B. Okay, that's implausible because, for instance, I know that Piano's axioms are true, and let's say that Piano's axiom, axioms entail, let us suppose that Goldbach's conjecture is true, but I have no idea whether Goldbach's conjecture is true. Okay, so what I know or what I believe is not closed under logical consequence. Uh, as a special case, we have validity. All the logically valid formulas are known or believed, and we have consistency. So supposing that this is believed, uh, one cannot believe in consistencies. Okay, one cannot believe that A and believe that not A. That's again counterintuitive because we all experience having perhaps implicit or covert inconsistent beliefs. Perhaps we cannot explicitly believe in inconsistency. Uh, I don't think that, but everybody agrees that at, at least implicitly we can have inconsistent beliefs. Okay, so back in the 80s, Rantala proposed impossible worlds uh, to overcome the problems of logical omniscience in knowledge and belief representation. He said, well, Let's broaden the model space. Let's also allow impossible worlds in the picture. Um, and let's take impossible worlds as epistemic alternatives for fallible cognitive agents. It's easy to show that if we allow impossible worlds of, of any kind to be accessible, we can destroy all the unwelcome closure properties of knowledge or belief. Okay. Uh, and the same goes for our naive representation operator. So we can represent or conceive that A, and even, the, even if A entails B, we will not perforce imagine or conceive that B. And we can conceive or represent inconsistent situation. We can conceive that A and conceive that not A. Uh, it's easy to invalidate <coughs> those principles when one has impossible words in the picture. I will just... Uh, show that for consistency, okay? It's very easy. Just access, just pick via your accessibility relation worlds where both P and not P hold, okay? Then you can have that at the actual world, it is represented that P and it is represented that not P. Okay. Um, this solution is good as far as it goes to overcome the problems of logical omniscience, but it is too cheap. Uh, and that's why I call that operator naive. It is too cheap in the following sense. Uh, it has been spotted by some people like Mark Jago, who has worked intensively on knowledge and belief representation, that uh, if you allow impossible words of any kind to be accessible, uh, the whole world's apparatus kind of drops out as idle machinery. Why? Well, worlds in W, uh, since we admit impossible words of any kind, also worlds not closed under any uh, non-trivial relation of logical consequence, they can correspond to arbitrary sets of formulas true at them. They're given a world, take the set of worlds accessible from it. Yes. Okay. So the set of worlds W1, which are accessible uh, from W. <coughs> Let C be the set 
of formulas true at all of them. Now, an agent's representational state looks like a merely syntactic structure. So we have that it is represented that A is true at the world only if A is in that set of formulas. And that's an arbitrary set of formulas. Now, there are approaches uh, to belief and knowledge representation which uh, directly simply represent an agent's cognitive state as a set of sentences. Okay, so what do you believe now? Well, this can be modeled just as a set of sentences, all and only the sentences that you right now explicitly believe. But that's not a very enlightening way of modeling belief states, okay? Um, so the good feature of the possible words approach is that it allowed us to explore the structure of belief states, of epistemic states. We cannot do the same with uh, mere sets of sentences. Um, nor closing uh, a conceivability of a presentation operator under some weaker than classical logical consequence will help. Some people have used paraconsistent logics uh, in these uh, uh, scenarios because paraconsistent logics, as you may know, invalidate the inference from a contradiction to an arbitrary conclusion, okay? So some people said, oh, let's use these logics to model people who have inconsistent beliefs because they don't believe everything just because they believe in a contradiction, okay? But that's not a good approach. Uh, because we get logical omniscience back with respect to the weaker logical consequence, okay? And that's similarly implausible. For instance, paraconsistent arithmetic, which is, let's say, uh, piano axioms on top of a paraconsistent logic, uh, that's well-developed non-classical mathematics, but we don't imagine the remote paraconsistent logical consequences of its axioms, okay? It seems that no kind of logical closure, no matter how weak the logic is, will give us an intuitively plausible model for doxastic and epistemic states of finite and fallible cognitive agents. Okay. Um, so here's my proposal. I think that when we conceive stuff, we rule out worlds, we rule out some scenarios, uh, not by way of logic, but via, so by importing further content, further information from actuality. Even though that information doesn't follow logically from what we have explicitly conceived or represented in our minds. Here's an example. So suppose that I'm reading uh, Doyle's uh, uh, novels, okay? And reading those, no those novels, I picture in my mind a certain scenario, okay? Uh, so I imagine Sherlock Holmes as a man living in London, because uh, I read that uh, in the novel. And um, let's say that nowhere does Doyle explicitly claim that London is in Europe, okay? Uh, nor does he ever speak of Sherlock Holmes' lungs, okay? Still, at the actual world, London is in Europe, and normally a man has lungs. Doyle's story say, stories say nothing against this, so it should hold throughout the worlds that comply with the representation, okay? I know these facts, and I import them into the represented content. So I do imagine, if implicitly, uh, Holmes as living in Europe and as having lungs. 
But this is not logically entailed by the explicit content of those novels. Okay? We do this all the time when we imagine or when we conceive scenarios or situations in general. So it is conceived that A should hold at the world W, if and only if A holds at the worlds where the explicit content obtains, but something else happens. Uh, further information imported from the world at which, at which I conceive or imagine the stuff, uh, um, further information from that world is preserved. And that's where Lewis enters the, enters the stage. Okay. Because um, if that's the case, then conceivability is kind of a catalyst paribus phenomenon. Uh, it works in a way similar to counterfactual conditionals in the standard Lewis Stalnaker treatment. So you may know that Lewis and Stalnaker proposed to understand counterfactual conditionals or in general, catalyst paribus conditionals by resorting to a model semantics to possible worlds. And they propose to consider as a primitive notion the notion of similarity between worlds. Okay. So Stalnaker thought that the analysis worked both for indicative catalyst paribus conditionals and for counterfactuals. Uh, Lewis believed that the analysis only worked for counterfactuals, uh, uh, but that's not very important now. So the idea is that a catalyst paribus conditional, if A then B, or if you want it to be a counterfactual, if it were the case that A, then it would be the case that B, is true at the world if and only if B is true at all the catalyst paribus worlds where A is true, the A worlds. Uh, and both Stanaker and Lewis proposed to understand uh, catalyst paribus worlds as closest, most similar to the world of evaluation. Okay, so um, um, <clears throat> if it were the case that A, it would be the case that B is true if and only if all the closest or most similar worlds where A is true also make B true. Okay, so these are not just the worlds where A, all the worlds where A is true, but the worlds where A is true and which uh, include no gratuitous changes with respect to actuality or with respect to the world at which we evaluate the condition. Okay. Uh, so I claim that the explicit content of a mental representation may play a role similar to the one of a conditional antecedent. Uh, so we instead of talking of representation in the abstract, I propose that we focus on representational acts performed on specific occasions. These are going to be characterized by the explicit content to be directly expressed by formulas. So take K as the relevant set of formulas, and we will assume that each formula in the set determines its own accessibility relation. Each formula will come with its own conceivability operator. Uh, this one, let's represent it uh, by putting the formula within square brackets. Uh, so we add the brackets to the language, and now we have that if A and B are well-formed formulas, this is also a well-formed formula. You can read it as something like, uh, it is represented in, in representational act A that B, or uh, in a more explicit way, it is represented in the representational act whose explicit content is A that B. 
And interpretation is just like before, but we don't have a single representational accessibility relation. We have a set of them, uh, one for each formula. And the truth conditions are as follows uh, for possible worlds. Uh, it is represented in representational act A that B, if and only if, for all the worlds accessible via that specific accessibility indexed by A, B is true, and duality for the, falsity, for the falsity condition. So it is false that it is represented in representational act A that B, if and only if there is some world uh, which is accessible at which B is false. Um, so each act whose, whose explicit content is given by A comes with its own function, mapping each world where the representing takes place to the set the act allows access to. So think about this as a set selection function. Okay. Uh, so the function that corresponds to a formula takes as input a, wor a world and outputs the set of representationally accessible worlds. Uh, the two formulations are equivalent so uh, world W1 representationally accesses, uh, uh, world W representationally accesses world W1, even only if that world W1 is in the set of worlds selected by this set selection function. So we can equivalently give the truth conditions this way by using the function and saying, if bracketed A is the set of worlds where the formula is true, then for possible worlds we have this. So it is represented in uh, representational act A that B, that's true or respectively false at the world, just in case B is true at all the worlds or false at some world in a set determined by that function. Okay, uh, those were the technicalities, uh, but this is the same framework you find in the Lewisian or in the Stalnakirian approach to counterfactuals. Okay, um, each counterfactual antecedent uh, comes with a function that given a world outputs the set of closest worlds where the antecedent is true. You check those worlds. If the consequent is true at all those worlds, then the counterfactual conditional is true. OK, two main philosophical questions on top of this construction. So which constraints may one want or not want for the various accessibilities of for the various functions? And the most important question, how does closeness work with impossible worlds. Okay, so many objections against the Stalnakirian account, against the Lewisian account of counterfactuals, say that the fundamental primitive of the theory, closeness, uh, is not a very good notion, okay? Because closeness between possible worlds or similarity between worlds uh, as a comparative relation, that's a vague notion. We have no clear ideas on what it means for a world to be similar to another or for a world to be more similar than another to a third world. Uh, but Lewis said that uh, that's good because counterfactuals are vague. So we need a notion which is itself vague and context dependent to give an analysis of counterfactuals provided that notion is well understood. And according to Lewis, the notion of similarity uh, is vague uh, it is context dependent, but it is well understood. Okay. Um, but how does closeness, closeness work when impossible words are around? Okay. Uh, uh, that may, so the presence of impossible words may complicate matters. Uh, I will speak briefly about the constraints 
which one may want or not want to hold for the various accessibilities. Um, okay, so one constraint we should have is this, uh, the obtaining constraint, which basically claims that uh, at possible worlds, uh, we can only access worlds where the explicit representational content obtains. This is just in order to validate this. So uh, whatever I explicitly conceive, I conceive. It's just a triviality. Okay. Uh, when I explicitly conceive Holmes as uh, living in London, I conceive Holmes as living in London. Um, another constraint we might want to have uh, is limits accessibility to adjunctive worlds, which basically means worlds where worlds which may be impossible but where at least conjunction behaves uh, uh, in the right way. Um, so we will only access worlds such that if A is true there and B is true there, also the conjunction of A and B is going to be true there. That gives the intuitive entailment that if I imagine in representational act A that B and I imagine that C, I will also imagine. Uh, if I imagine in representational act a that B, and also that C, I will also imagine that B and C, okay. That may be controversial in the light of a Quanian example concerning counterfactual, but counterfactuals, but I will skip this um, unless we want to get back to it in the discussion. Okay, now we need to talk about uh, cotenability. So Lewis gives a lot of importance in his treatment of counterfactuals to the notion of cotenability. But he took the notion from Goodman. Okay, so what is cotenability, roughly? Cotenability is the relation that by holding between some information and the formula makes the information eligible to be imported into the representation whose explicit content is given by A. So we have an intuitive characterization of, of what it means that it is represented in the representational act whose explicit content is A that B. It should hold at the world when A plus a catalyst paribus clause, say C of A determined by A and cotenable with A at that world delivers B. So if I am right, we can conceive absolute impossibilities, things that obtain at no possible world whatsoever. But once we have conceived an impossibility, cotenability marks the familiar aspects of reality we don't want to undo. We hold them constant relatively to A. They make us feel at home, even if A has us look at the strange. Uh, Catenability is going to have various properties. I only mentioned one. Um, so the cotenable clause, uh, which is basically the set of things we import into our representation, okay? So for instance, uh, going back to the Holmes example, okay, that uh, normally a man has lungs, that London is in Europe, those are cotenable, that stuff which is not logically entailed by the explicit representational content given by the Doyle stories, but which I import into my mental representation, okay. But the cotenable stuff is not made only of truths. We also may import believed falsities. So what people do not change, as has been claimed, when they create a counterfactual alternative to reality depends on their beliefs rather than on what is the case. And the importation of false beliefs may be widespread. Uh, for instance, as Williamson has remarked um, uh, in The Philosophy of Philosophy, where he speaks at length of counterfactual imagination, uh, 
naive physics, and he means something like our intuitive view of physics, okay? Our expectations on the movements of objects in space, uh, despite being extremely cotenable, uh, is false of our world, okay? Uh, so the selected worlds are not going to be precisely the closest to how things stand at the world where one conceives. They are closest to how things are believed to be there, as in, uh, for instance, Lewis's treatment of truth in fiction, which is kind of similar to this approach, but I will not, will not get into this. So the job of the actual world is not to fix how things actually are, but the beliefs that are actually held. Uh, this means, it's a technical point, I'll mention it very quickly, that even the condition which Lewis called weak centering is going to have to fail um, in our semantics. Um, well, we don't need to get into this because it's rather technical. So the upshot is that uh, these operators are going to support a very weak uh, logic, okay? Even though some constraints are plausible, uh, their logic is going to be extremely weak. Okay, let's move on to the key topic. How does closeness between worlds work when there are impossible worlds around? Uh, Williamson is a main character here because, um, well, first of all, uh, if we accept impossible worlds at all, it is intuitive that some will be more similar to actuality than others. So the trivial world, the world at which everything is true, provided we can even conceive such a thing, has to be very remote from the actual world. Much more than a slightly inconsistent world which is just like the actual world, but where some meson, let's say, is both green and anti-green. Supposing that's an absolute impossibility. Okay. Uh, some people have proposed, for instance, Daniel Nolan, who has proposed the semantics for counterfactual conditionals that includes impossible worlds, what he called the strangeness of impossibility condition. Any possible world is closer to the actual world than any impossible world. Uh, but a key aspect of closeness for a Ketteris Paribus account of conceivability has to do, or so I claim, with a priority and opacity. Okay, um, let's see why. So, Here's a situation in which we conceive an absolute impossibility. So somebody imagines Hesperus as not being phosphorus, or water as failing to be H2O. Okay, since Hesperus is phosphorus and water is, is H2O, if Kripke is right that identity is necessary, there is no possible world. There's no metaphysically possible world in which Hesperus is not phosphorus or water is not H2O. Uh, so take our conceiving explicitly that water is not H2O. By the obtaining constraint above, well, we do conceive that water is not H2O. But we may want this to fail. Because we conceive a water as not being H2O, we don't conceive, a, conceive water as failing to be self-identical, okay? That's the intuition. Uh, the ancients took Hesperus as distinct from Phosphorus, but they had no doubts on Phosphorus' self-identity, okay? So, says Williamson, when we imaginatively develop our conceiving that Hesperus is not Phosphorus or that water is not H2O, we are committed to the explicit denial of no logical truth. So, two should not be entailed by one. Now, 
Here Williamson is criticizing a certain account of counterpossible conditionals. Counterpossible conditionals are counterfactuals whose antecedent is impossible. It is true at no possible world whatsoever. So in the standard Lewisian treatment of counterfactuals, all counterpossible conditionals are vacuously true. Of course, if it were the case that A, then it would be the case that B. That's true, according to the theory, if and only if at all the closest worlds where A is true, B is true. So if A is true at no possible world, then the counterfactual is trivially true. Okay? So when A is impossible, if it were the case that A, then it would be the case that B, that's automatically true. And also it's opposite. So the conditional that has the same antecedent and the negated consequent, if it were the case that A, then it would not be the case that B. That's also trivially true. Some people find this counterintuitive. They say, oh, counterpossibles are not all trivially true. So counterfactual conditions should not be all trivially true just because the antecedent is impossible. So people have proposed analysis of counterpossible conditions which resort to impossible words in order to make some counterpossibles false. Williamson thinks that the approach is fundamentally wrong. He, he targets the counterfactuals which correspond to this. So if water were not H2O, then water would not be H2O. If water were not H2O, then water would not be water. Okay. He says, look, this one follows from this one just by substitution of co-referential terms. Okay. So if somebody supports this view of counterpossibles, uh, then uh, he or she is, is committed to the claim that counterfactuals create opaque contexts, contexts in which the substitutivity of co-referential terms fades. And that's too bad. Okay. It's too bad because counterfactuals are not hyperintentional operators. They should not create hyperintentional contexts. Okay, even if Williamson is right that substitutivity should hold in counterfactual contexts, this is not so for our conceivability operator. Of course, they model intentional phenomena. So we are talking about substitution within the scope of an intentional operator, intention with a T. Okay. Of course, substitutivity should fail in some cases. Okay. So for T to fail, we need closest worlds where water is not H2O, say it's XYZ, but water is self-identical. So the intuition is that even while conceiving water as not being H2O, the self-identity of water is a priori to be retained. Appeal to a priority works because a priority creates opaque contexts. We cannot move from it is a priori that water is water to it is a priori that water is H2O. Okay, this one is true, this one is false, even though for uh, comes from three by replacing co-referential terms. So uh, people like Brogard and Salerno who have defended the view that there can be false counterpossible conditionals or non-trivially true counterpossible conditionals have claimed that world closeness when impossible worlds are around should be a partially epistemic notion and it should take a priority on board. I agree with a couple of provisors. So, Brogard and Salerno follow Chalmers in taking a priority as context dependent, but unlike Chalmers uh, in his paper on uh, epistemic space, they don't stipulate that, 
stipulate that all mathematical and logical truths are a priori for all conceiving subjects. Okay? We may fail to access, we may fail to believe, we may fail to know a priori truths. Okay? That's again consistent with that picture of us as fallible cognitive agents. Okay? Uh, we may fail to believe some very long and complicated truth functional tautology, for instance, uh, even though that tautology is an a priori truth. Okay. So they call their notion a priori star to mark the difference. It's a picture one can also find in uh, Mark Jago's papers on these topics. So given two impossible words, W1 and W2, they say, here's our account of closeness. World W1 is closer than world W2 when A, W1 does not contain a greater number of sentences formally inconsistent with the relevant background facts held fixed in the context than W2 does. They take worlds as sets of sentences. That's why they say contain a greater number of sentences. Okay. Uh, and if W1 and W2 contain the same number of sentences formally inconsistent with the relevant background facts held fixed in the content, context, then B, uh, W1 preserves a greater number of a priori star implications between sentences than well W2 does. I suggest a similar view with two provisors. So we should replace background facts with background beliefs. Our catenable background can host, can host false beliefs, as we have seen. Uh, and secondly, a priori or a priori star implications and statements are just further co-tenable claims. And the more so, the more obvious they are. Of course, obviousness is a very vague and context-dependent and context notion. Uh, closeness is not only about preserving a greater number of items, but also about retaining what is evident. The more obvious the a priori or a priori star statements violated in an impossible world are, the more far-fetched it is all things considered. Okay, so in particular, H2O is H2O or water is water. That's a priori or a priori star for all minimally rational speakers. It's self-evident background, we just tend not to give up. But water is H2O is just not a priori. Okay, it is a metaphysical necessity if Kripke is right, but we only know it a posteriori. So this is a world where water is not H2O, but is self-identical, can be closer than worlds where water is neither, neither H2O nor self-identical. Okay. So this one comes out false, even though this one comes out true, because we consider here those worlds which are as close as possible to actuality and where water is not H2O. Those are going to be metaphysically impossible worlds if Kripke is right, okay? The closest such worlds, despite being uh, metaphysically impossible, they are not worlds where something fails to be self-identical, okay? So the idea is that we have a similarity ordering for impossible worlds, which takes into account what is a priori more obvious and what is a priori less obvious, okay? So the worlds which uh, violate some complicated a priori truth, those are, be, are going to be fairly closer than those worlds which violate obvious a priori truths, like uh, claims of self-identity. Okay. 
This is a first rough account of how closeness may work in Keteris Paribus conceivability <coughs> operators. Okay, I'm gonna stop here. Thank you.